Welcome to the second episode of my new podcast series, Financial Crime Matters. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals, and this series will examine hot topics and interview the people that are making a difference in fighting financial crime. In this second episode, I speak with Jake Bernstein, the author of Secrecy World. The book's just out in paperback and will soon be a major motion picture. The book deals with the Panama Papers and the world of professional money launderers. Enjoy our chat and subscribe to our podcast because financial crime matters to you and to me. Here we go. Jake, it's great to have you. If you could see him, he's showing the book here, and, and, and it's a beautiful-looking book, actually. Just out in paper, right? Yeah, it recently came out in paperback, and thank you so much for having me. So for someone who is stuck on an island or in a coma for the past three or four years, sort of set up what the Panama Papers are and what they have meant. So the Panama Papers begins with an anonymous source contacting a German reporter from a newspaper called Süddeutsche Zeitung asking if he is interested in data, which as a reporter, of course, he is. And the documents, the first sort of round of documents is not that many, but they are very interesting. They primarily come from a Panamanian law firm called Mossack Fonseca, which is one of the, was one of the top four creators of shell companies. In and incidentally, not the top one, even though we know more no. of it. But one of the one of the top ones. These initial round of documents have some very interesting names attached to them, including the godfather of Vladimir Putin's eldest daughter, and people who are connected to the then Argentinian president and a secret company controlled by the head of Iceland. Thus begins a flow of documents. The German paper shares these documents with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, which is an umbrella group for investigative journalists all over the world. And it ends up being, at the end of the day, well in excess of 12.5 million files. And it covers decades of this law. And billions of dollars. Yes, and billions of dollars to date. And I, I suspect we'll be talking counting, right? We're still more counting. about this. Yeah. We're still counting, but the tax authorities worldwide have recovered more than $700 million. Yeah. Mossack Fonseca did not invent these instruments. You're absolutely right that they did not invent this system. In fact, some people say Delaware did, really, in some way. <laughs> and Delaware, yes, Delaware did, actually, in that the, the template, the Delaware template was then adopted by Panama, by the British Virgin Islands, and by a number of other jurisdictions. So, yes, in many ways, Delaware is the progenitor of this system, although you know, some people would argue that the British, the UK, the United Kingdom is a big player in that as well. Mossack Fonseca had aspirations of becoming kind of the McDonald's of the offshore world. They wanted to make these shell companies, and not just shell companies, but foundations and trusts also, which are often used in conjunction, available to people all over the world in a way that it hadn't been before. Usually this had been something that was really just the province of, of the very wealthy and the very wealthy in more developed countries. And Mossack Fonseca wanted to sort of democratize that, but it, it quickly became uh, more and more difficult. You, I think in the book you say something like, they made it so that the merely well-to-do would use these instruments and not just the very wealthy. So. That's absolutely right. They started at a time when there was this increase in global wealth, a rising 
middle and upper class in a number of countries. And the ability through the internet to do this kind of commerce on a global scale. So they were perfectly poised to take advantage of all of those things and very smart in seeing it. And, and they helped open up new tax havens. So in fact, you know, Mossack Fonseca had a lot to do with popularizing the British Virgin Islands as a tax haven, which became so popular that in fact in China, for a long time, they referred to offshore companies as a BVI. Because it was it was so common to have a British Virgin Islands company, which was totally uh, a Mossack Fonseca invention. But when Mossack Fonseca began, this business was as simple as you sold someone a company and you put the information in a file, and you didn't think about it again until it was time to invoice them for the renewal. And you didn't have to do any real due diligence. You didn't really have to look into who was behind the company or where the money was coming from or anything like that. Of course, over time, and particularly after the financial crisis and after 9-11, there was new vetting requirements, new due diligence requirements, and it became very difficult for Mossack Fonseca. They had already released tens of thousands of companies into the wild right. to go back and actually find out who were That the- is a big detail in the book. When banks start to quibble with them that they're responsible for the KYC and they say, no, you are responsible for the KYC. It becomes this sort of hot potato. I actually asked Jurgen Mossack if he had ever seen that famous I Love Lucy episode where she's in the chocolate factory trying to keep up with the conveyor belt yeah. as the chocolate is moving faster and faster. And he had seen it. And he agreed that it sort of became something akin to that, you know, where they had several hundred thousand companies out there. And at that point, there was no incentive for the lawyers and the accountants and the bankers who had set up those companies to provide information. What you're saying is Jurgen Mossack did not see himself as a criminal in doing all this stuff. He sat with you and he seems to say it got out of control. But the vehicles they set up, the way they operated really did become a part of this whole professional money laundering world. Where do you place them and and maybe comment a little bit about what they thought they were doing? They maintain their innocence to this day, and their attitude has always been that it wasn't their responsibility, that they sold the companies and what people did with them was on them, and that they tried to comply with all the due diligence requirements that people demanded. But they had a reputation for being fairly slack, on those vetting requirements. And so because of that, they did attract, I think, a lot of criminals. I mean, it's interesting that we didn't find a huge number of American politicians in the data. We didn't find a lot of notable Americans in there. What we did find, though, were a rather large number of American criminals, Ponzi schemers and scamsters and uh, and fraudsters of, of many different types and flavors. And I think because there was a recognition that Mossack Fonseca was a place where you could go where maybe it wasn't too expensive and they wouldn't necessarily check that hard. It's a good deal and they won't ask questions. Exactly. Sort of the immediate fallout, we've got lots of embarrassed politicians and... We found, I think, 140 politicians or people in government or connected to people in government. And that was obviously a huge deal in countries all over the world. We found the prime minister of Pakistan, who, because of what was revealed in the Panama Papers, was removed from office and is serving a seven-year jail term. Prime minister of Iceland, who was forced from office. But then there was lots of attitude changes. In Colombia, there was an 800% spike in disclosure after the Panama Papers came out. You know, and we saw that in lots of different countries. Or Venezuelans who had laundered money in Panamanian real estate stopped doing that. 
because Panama became stricter in their rules and regulations in response to the Panama Papers. And then in the United States, only recently, we saw the first indictments of American citizens and some Mossack Fonseca employees. And the IRS criminal investigations chief said that more investigations are on the way. And then there's the money that was recovered from tax evasion, more than 700 million now, and the number continues to grow. I mean, there were so many documents here. The German government obtained the Panama Papers through sources other than the journalists, and they have shared them with other governments. Uh, Even this many years out, I think we'll be looking at prosecutions and recoveries for many years to come. Certainly there was a lot of force that came behind efforts at CDD rules, even often seen as not entirely adequate. FinCEN CDD rule in the U.S. that requires banks to get beneficial ownership information, and of course the public registries. When we credit some of the revelations and the overall environment from the Panama Papers with that, and will those things make a difference, I guess, is then question two. I mean, I think it's it's an excellent question. I keep on coming back to something that President Obama said in a press conference right after we released the Panama Papers. And he said, we're never going to be able to stop illicit financial flows entirely, but we shouldn't make it easy. And he acknowledged that it had been way too easy. And I think in some ways it is toughening up. Now, you talk about the CDD rules, and there's been a lot of criticism about that. And I spoke off the record with a Treasury official who was involved in this, and he acknowledged that the lobbying to soften and weaken that rule had been intense. You know, for me, this sort of gets back to something that we also see in in accounting, which is the old debate about rules-based versus principle-based. Rules-based are rigid. Rules are rigid. They can be circumvented. They can be played. And principle-based can be hard to enforce and a little squishy and, and requires maybe some subjective. And so where's the balance? You know, a lot of people feel that at least the larger banks before these rules were fairly good about figuring out who the beneficial owner was, even if they didn't write it down because they didn't want to have this person be a terrorist or a big drug trafficker or some huge criminal or politician, and then it would blow up in their face and there'd be reputational issues. So they they found out. Now, they might not have to find out because it can be on a lawyer or it can be divided amongst multiple owners. And so they are in some ways protected by this rule. Law enforcement kind of liked it. Yeah, you can understand why prosecutors and criminal investigators like rules, right? Because it's very easy to say, you know, you're on one side of the rule or you're on the other side of the rule. But it certainly has the ability to be gamed. You can put a face forward and that's not actually the real owner. Uh, The Russians are very good at that. Going back to what Obama said, we're never going to stop this entirely. They just have to be creative and aggressive in enforcement in trying to stop it. Enforcement is key. Mossack Fonseca operated under rules in multiple jurisdictions, those rules including auditing and due diligence and anti-money laundering manuals and all kinds of stuff like that, were not followed and no one forced them to follow them. We've talked a little bit that Europe is adopting the public registries. There's still some sense of whether there's a will to enforce those from the UK, for instance, on the territories and how good the information will be in the public registries and who will get it. So it is an ongoing battle. But Your book details various levels of commitment to enforcement. The IRSCI, for instance, how much resources they had, who was standing in the way of them pursuing cases, how these cases were difficult. 
that IRS CI unit is still decimated in terms of the total number of people there. The UK, uh, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, doesn't really have lots of people to do this. So is there a will to do this? I mean, I don't, I don't think that there's enough of, of a will right now, and we just don't see it. It comes from the top, clearly this administration in particular, but uh, the Obama administration facing a Republican Congress uh, didn't do much better. The IRS has been decimated, but it's also cultural. You know, I have a story in my book, Secrecy World, about this extraordinary IRS agent named Joe West, who was sort of given a mandate to really research this offshore system and come up with a menu of ways to go after American tax evaders. And he did. He did an extraordinary job. He met with all kinds of people in multiple government agencies, and he went to tax havens and talked to people there, and he came up with some ideas, and he met extraordinary bureaucratic resistance. The system is just not designed to do these kinds of things. And West ends up retiring uh, somewhat embittered, not really being able to do the kinds of things that he felt were fairly obvious and easy to do. So banks, are banks doing enough? What should banks be doing? You're going to be listened to now by a lot of bank compliance people in particular. I mean, I think banks have, particularly the larger banks, in many ways gotten better. It's cultural. And it's very difficult to change culture, particularly in a large institution. I think that there are ebbs and flows, and it requires a commitment from the top and the resources to do the kind of due diligence and vetting that is required. Right now, banks are doing very well. And so you would think that the pressure to maximize revenue, which is often the biggest enemy of compliance, is not as intense as perhaps it has been in the past. They've seen the reputational hits that can come from these major scandals. I don't think we can let the banks off the hook, but I think there has been some improvement. As we look out there, where should we look for further prosecutions? Bring it up to date. Sure. Well, the most extraordinary and dramatic revelation that happened recently was the news that despite more than 100 media organizations Writing about the Panama Papers in April 2016, Jurgen Mosak told me how it really sort of came home to him what had just happened to him and his firm when he turned on the TV and every channel was the Panama Papers, you know, internationally and nationally in Panama. So despite all of that, the leak actually continued. They never shut the door. I mean, it's sort of shocking. But uh, recently, uh, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists and its partners published a whole new set of stories based on information that came from Mossack Fonseca in 2016 and 2017, before the firm actually shut its doors and ended the leak. Particularly, this kind of investigative journalism continues to be very dangerous. This was a record year, uh, or perhaps the past year, I'd have to look at the numbers for journalists being imprisoned and being killed. Absolutely. The Malta piece is particularly distressing. It involves a blogger in Malta by the name of Daphna Caruana-Galicia. And Daphna was an extraordinary investigative reporter. She actually scooped. She didn't have access to the Panama Papers. She wasn't part of the ICIJ group that originally broke the story, but she managed to scoop that group. She connected some dots and found out about some stuff that was going on with Mossack Fonseca and Maltese politicians. About a year afterwards, she went out to go to her bank and got in her car and turned it on and it exploded and spread her body all over a nearby field. You know, this was extraordinarily threatening. This was clearly a message, very public way to kill someone. 
a car bomb. And it was a message to people in Malta and to people all around the world not to do these kinds of investigations. It obviously isn't going to stop journalists from doing them. And there were less dramatic consequences as well for journalists in Ecuador. Journalists were attacked on social media by the president at the time. They were attacked in Argentina and in Africa. There's been physical attacks. You asked what was different about the Panama Papers. You know, before we knew that there was an offshore system, and occasionally we would get glimpses into it. And for the first time, we really got to see both the macro and the micro. We got to see the scale of it, and we got to see how it works, how bankers are involved, how accountants and lawyers are involved, and, and exactly how it all fits together. And people really began to make the connections. So citizens could see how this system of tax evasion, of global tax evasion, directly affected the fact that there wasn't enough money for bridges and for police and for hospitals and things like that. Corruption and bribery and everything, where these funds hurt people, they come out of very poor countries. And yeah, You know, it's estimated that 15% of African wealth is held in tax havens. It's what, $203 billion. We can really see how the system works with the Panama Papers. I think that impact is probably going to be the most lasting one. There's been a lot of revelations that have come out of the Panama Papers, some legislative regulatory changes, prosecutions, real fallout for journalists. Are you optimistic or sort of pessimistic? It's so interesting because when I started the book, I thought that it was ultimately a success story. If you look at the Panama Papers over decades, what you can see is these increasing requirements for due diligence and transparency and that there was more light being shed on what was happening. And it was a good thing. And by the time I finish the book, I'm not quite as optimistic. It really is two steps forward, one step back. But particularly with the Trump administration and some of the trends that we see globally, it's not quite as forward moving as one would hope. More than anything, I think there's been a raising of global consciousness, which I think ultimately will bring a lot more transparency to the system, which is what is really needed. There is cause for optimism just not as much as I would like. Jake, thank you for taking the time to talk with me about your book, Secrecy World. Good luck with the movie coming out, which has like big stars, Yes, right? the movie is being directed by Steven Soderbergh, and it stars Meryl Streep and Gary Oldman, Antonio Banderas, and Jeffrey Wright. It's going to be a Netflix movie, but I think it'll have a theatrical release as well. Hopeful that it will be out in the fall of 2019. Thanks again, Jake. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to hear more about what's important in fighting financial crime, be sure to subscribe to Financial Crime Matters with me, Kieran Beer, on SoundCloud or iTunes. See you next month.